This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. So this morning, the police minister, Begdele, will release a report by a panel of experts which uh, looked into policing and crowd control with the South African police uh, services. The panel was appointed following the findings and uh, recommendations that were made uh, by uh, in the Farnham Commission Commission's report that looked into the 2012 Marikana massacre. It was chaired by the late Judge David Sekalime Vusmus in Changase, comprising of a security and subject experts. Uh, let's find out more uh, about this report that will be released. One of the panelists joining us is uh, Head of the Justice and Violence Prevention Program at the ISS, uh, Gareth Newham. Good morning, Gareth Newham, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, TT, and good morning to everybody listening. So you were asked to actually, the book, the work you were doing was based on what the panel, uh, at least on what the recommendations that came out of the commission uh, of inquiry there into the what happened at the Marikana, uh, I, I, the Farnham Commission of Inquiry, I should say. Just talk to me about the how you went about uh, the work that you had to do. Well, the terms of reference were exactly as you said. They came out of the Farnham Commission into the Marikana Massacre. And there were various areas of work that the commission, that commission had not been able to finalize in terms of recommendations. So the, uh, Judge Farnham and his co-panelists uh, on that commission suggested that they or recommended that another panel be set up of both international and mm. local policing experts to really get to grips with what are the best international practices around dealing with large crowds, training, what kind of equipment should be used, and how should the police work to becoming much more professional um, and credible in the eyes of the public. So right. that's what the panel's work was about. Garth, is, I mean, talk about international best practice. Is there such a thing, though? I mean, if we look at, I mean, just one observing on television and watching how uh, police deal with uh, crowd violence in different parts of the world, it is as varied as a number of countries that are out there. We see often very violent crackdowns. If you look at what happens in a place like Myanmar, uh, you look at sometimes where things are, where the crowds tend to be, where they, it seems to be inadequate. If you look at what happened in the U.S. where the capital building was uh, stormed. So is there such a thing really as international best practice when it comes to crowd control and policing? Well, you've got to start with international humanitarian uh, law and, and human rights. So you say, of course, there's varied ways in which different countries and police agencies respond to crowds. Um, but we were interested in uh, the best ways that a police agency that was guided by the Bill of Rights mm. that are found in our constitution on internationally recognized, how would such an agency put those um, principles and rights into action in the way that it understood its work and carried out its mandate? In South Africa, everybody has a constitutional right to protest, but of course they mustn't do so violently. And the police have a duty to uphold rights to life, freedom from harm, and so our police must go out of their way when they do their work to ensure they don't unnecessarily harm or kill people. So we looked at what are the, if you have that as your guiding principle, then how do you train and uh, equip and manage your police? So that's what we looked at. Is there a fundamental problem with our training? I mean, from what you found, is there, are there any issues that lie there? Because I often get, particularly in recently, what has happened now, we know the most uh, high-profile incident now with Togosi uh, Simtumba, um, who was killed in the crossfire there of uh, the police opening fire with rubber bullets on a crowd of stu- protesting students that... Uh, 
you know, and then the next day when there was violence again, where cars were stoned, the police seemed to like uh, be reluctant to get involved lest they be accused of being heavy-handed. But surely, if you have a training, you should always know what to do in these kind of situations. Well, we looked into the training in quite a lot of detail and spent some time with uh, public order police units that were undergoing their training. And in many ways, the training is adequate. So I don't think it's a situation in which it's that the police officers who are involved in public order policing situations don't know what to do. Um, there are definite areas for improvement. There's a lot that could be done to substantially improve the, the conditions when police are being trained. Um, and also to help them navigate a much wider situation, sets of situations that come across. So the training was um, adequate in terms of police know not to just shoot at people too close. They know that they must uphold the law and all these kind of things. But then the second issue is that when they finish training and they go out into the field, there's generally quite uh, weak levels of command and control and supervision. In other words, when police start acting in ways that they weren't trained to act, they start shooting at people mm. discriminately, mm. too close, and they're not standing in formation. They don't get debriefed and held accountable for the training standards. So then that what you see is not actually what they're being trained, becomes routine practice until somebody gets killed. And then, of course, those individual officers will be held accountable. But the systemic issue, which is command and control, how do your frontline supervisors make sure that these officers adhere to their training? That needs to be addressed. Absolutely. Because, uh, and then uh, there's uh, the, one of the Farnham Commission of Inquiries recommendations was uh, that to, uh, police relook at uh, the use of um, um, fire, uh, uh, rubber bullets, and that, in fact, that is something that, uh, that call has now re-emerged again. Is, is there something fundamentally wrong? And I think we spoke to a police union recently where I asked whether police are using them properly and that, uh, you know, they're not supposed to do that. I mean, you're not supposed to get some, of course, they can be lethal, but they, they, you, you shouldn't have someone dying from being fired on with a rubber bullet. Exactly, and the clear standards around how to use the rubber bullets. Uh, our recommendations, uh, well, when we looked into this matter, we saw that some of the rubber bullets, um, projectiles that the police are using are not very good. They're not very accurate. Mm-hmm. So unless you're standing very close to the person you're shooting at, you probably won't hit them. You're more likely to hit somebody else who you might not be aiming at. So that was a clear problem. And then every year, the technology around these projectiles improves. So we recommended that each year the police should do an assessment of the various kinds of uh, uh, less than lethal weaponry on the markets. Uh, and make sure that they're always using the ones that are most accurate and least likely to be damaging or deadly. Um, because at the moment, we did see that some of the projectiles they're using are simply not fit for purpose and mm. not very useful for the police. And to what extent as well did, uh, you know, does the report take into account, uh, uh, or at least the work that you did, and take into account the kind of crowds that our police are often confronted with, which uh, have, uh, can, tend, or have, can become and have in the past been quite violent at times? Yeah, we looked into that in a lot of details, and uh, we made a number of recommendations for reforming the Regulations of Gathering Act. Uh, and we also saw a lot of problems in which way that act was being implemented. So the act is there to ensure that people who want to protest and exercise their rights just notify the municipalities and the police um, so that they are able to protest in a way that's protected and safe and it doesn't end- undermine the rights of other people. Mm. In most of the cases where that happens, those protests are not violent. Um, but of course, there are a large number of protests that become violent or because, first of all, the, the, sometimes municipalities make it very difficult for protesters to access uh, a person to speak to about notifying them. Mm. Um, then people will just eventually have been trying for a long time to get some uh, you know, official to, to notify or look into their grievance and they haven't done so. So those cases do occur. But even then, it's generally not everybody in that crowd that's violent. 
Right. You do will mm. find groups within a crowd that are starting to act violently, and it's then the, for the police to, be able to identify those groups, try and separate them. And also, of course, even beforehand, using your intelligence. If you know that there's an area where there's lots of volatility, where people are protesting regularly, and sometimes these areas will have a lot of disruptive protests, mm. then go and start setting up structures with those communities and start speaking to them to find out how do you, you. Uh, assist them without becoming violent. Gareth Newham, Head of Justice and Violence and Prevention and Program at the Institute for Security Studies. Appreciate your time as always. Thank you. Nice to be on. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.